0: This week, a lecture about Alexander Hamilton and the early republic. San Diego State University professor Elizabeth Hoffman talks about Alexander Hamilton's role in the creation of the federal government. Alexander Hamilton, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, argued during the Constitutional Convention for a strong central government to mediate between the states.
1: Um, What I'd like to talk about today, and really the focus of this whole talk, I know you're wondering what is the focus, is on the Constitution. The story of the American Constitution How it created this precedent of sovereign states getting together, not going to war, cooperating, and building immense prosperity as a result. And how that's the story of the American Constitution is also the story of how it took the life of its staunchest defender, Alexander Hamilton.
0: Professor Hoffman also describes how, after the American Revolution, states operated as separate countries, which often caused problems.
1: So I think that one of the most exciting things about history and about world history is the way in which we discover how there are big patterns that, in a sense, rule our lives, and big patterns that sometimes touch the life of an individual person, or in which an individual person actually makes a big difference to the overall pattern. And we've been reading a book, uh, Valerie Hansen, Voyages in World History, and we know from that book that there are all kinds of big patterns. And that it's the job of students and professional historians to figure out what the big pattern is. Because in our lives, so much of what happens is so complex and chaotic and quick that we can't figure out what's the overall trajectory. So some of the patterns we've been looking at are things like the effect of the environment upon us, Um, whether it's uh, all the things that nature hurls at us, whether it's a hurricane or. Um, you know, a flood or a famine, or even tiny microbes that drastically affect people like Ebola. Uh, We've also looked at things that are like mechanical things or or technological inventions, and those are also big patterns. So, for example, the ways in which um, farming, I know farming doesn't seem like a technology, but the ways in which farming and the plow and things like that replaced uh, hunting and gathering, and that replacement of hunting and gathering by farming led from the neolithic into the paleolithic wow what bigger pattern could there be than that Um, and other technologies too that have really affected our lives such as the invention of the spinning wheel faster spinning wheels or um, steam engines and what did they do they led to the replacement of manual labor with machine labor and as we know as you already know that gave us the industrial revolution So those are giant patterns. And those are patterns I think are easier to see partly because they're outside ourselves. They're like actual objects we can see and feel and touch. But sometimes the most important patterns are the ones that are in here, the ones that we don't see, but they profoundly affect our understanding of our lives, uh, our basic assumptions. And what I want to talk about today is the way in which a certain very old set of assumptions about how the world works, about violence and power and order and government, how those changed radically, and how we today, we go about, you know, assuming that certain things are the way they are, and of course they've always been that way, but we know they haven't. So what is that big pattern, and what are the assumptions that have been changed and have been replaced by something else, and how does that relate to the man on the $10 bill, Alexander Hamilton, who, by the way is the most interesting man (laughs) of the American Revolution. I know this. I'm actually publishing a novel about Alexander Hamilton, so I'm just telling you, he's a really fun and interesting guy. So one of the big changes in the last two to three centuries in our assumptions has been the replacement of certain ideas by others. Now, what are those assumptions? The first of those assumptions is that power is something that once you get, you hold on to it tightly. You don't share it. Why would you share your power? That's the old assumption. The old assumption is that whenever they can, other people will try to seize your power from you. And now it takes me to my first picture. I mean, this is an old idea, that the people who will steal your stuff first are, of course, your neighbors. Uh, And this goes way, way back, very deep in human history. This isn't an actual cave painting, but, you know, I think it's pretty funny in any case. So that's a very ancient idea, and it's tied in with another idea, which is that nations, groups of people, have no right to exist as a separate group of people with their own government and own borders. That's something you win, and you defend it yourself. No one's ever going to defend it for you. And the first people who are going to try and rob you of it are, of course, who? Thank you, <laughs> your neighbors, of course. So whether that's um, the Mongol invasion of Poland, or the Aztecs conquering the tlaxcalans Collins, actually they never did beat the tlaxcalans Collins, but that's a different story, or Napoleon Bonaparte conquering almost all of Europe, with the exception of mighty England, uh, or the Japanese invasion and defeat of China in the 1930s. So that's a pattern, it's been there forever. Now it's been replaced by something really weird. I say weird because it's been replaced by something that's so unusual in hi- world history that we take for granted today that we have to really say, how that get, how did, why don't we operate that way anymore? And what has replaced that set of ideas? And there's several things, and I think you guys are going to recognize these ones, because well, actually all sets of these assumptions are kind of deep in our bones. But the other newer set of assumptions is that actually every nation, every group of people, has, has dignity and has the right to self-rule, has the right to their own borders. Uh, and, and in fact, who are the pre- first people who are gonna defend those for you? Your neighbors, <laughs> those, for the most part. Okay, Ukraine, we won't talk about that right now in Russia. But for the most part, it's the people around you who in solidarity with you uh, will help to defend your borders, who will protect you. Uh, and also the assumption that if you have a problem, that the best way to deal with it is not by getting up and slugging the person next to you. Don't do that. That the best way to deal with a problem is by talking it through, by arbitrating, by mediating, by, by in some way working it out. Right? Now, that's very different from the caveman drawing or from the others you've just seen. Now, that's a world, that's the world we live in. The world, for example, of the United Nations right? With the ideas. Now, it's not perfect. It doesn't work all the time. But people come. People come. People beg to come. Countries want to be represented in the United Nations because they know that that's the place where your sovereignty will be defended by a community of people. Uh, It's exemplified by things like the European Union, which has the flag. It reminds me a little bit of the old American flag, the original American flag with the stars in a circle, because they don't have 50 yet. All right, wait till they get 50. It's going to be hard. They're going to get something other than a circle, I predict. And it's a situation today where even people who really, really don't like each other, who in fact might be building bombs, might not, like Iran, will come to the United Nations on American soil and we will have a conversation. The conversation might not go like we like, but there's not that immediate resort to the first weapon because you know that that your neighbor will try to steal, will try to overrun your borders. Instead, what you know is that you're basically safe as a nation. Okay, you have problems, but you're basically safe. Now, you might say, okay, all right, so Professor Cobbs, how did we get there? Now, in history, often, especially in our textbooks, we rely a lot on what I would call proximate causes, meaning the thing that happened, like, right next to it. And, and, in fact, if we want to pick a date, if we want to say, okay, when does this start? A reasonable one is 1945, which was the founding of the United Nations. And the United Nations, and on the left, by the way, you see here a poster that was actually kind of a World War II era at the end. It was, the pre, it was talking about the preamble of the Charter of the United Nations, and on the right, I've made in bigger print for people like me but also people like you as I said we the peoples of the United Nations determined to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors have resolved that the parties to any dispute shall first of all seek a solution by negotiation and so on so you might say okay well all right, deal done that's when it started but actually world history is not like a light switch in a classroom there are no on-off switches in world history. We know, you all know, you've been in this class now, that the patterns, really big patterns, start somewhere farther back. There's a moment at which a kind of new template gets laid, and that trend picks up. Now, there are things that war against the trend, but if a trend is really powerful, like farming or the Industrial Revolution, even though some people hunt and, hunt and gather, et etc., cetera, et cetera, that trend will ultimately prevail, or at least it will become the dominant reality. So if we want to know where that starts in world history, oddly enough, we have to go back to the American Revolution. And this is not because the United States was the first post-colonial nation, which it was or the first modern democracy, which it was, or the first uh, federalist republic in modern history, which it was. Those are remarkable things, but they had precedents. We didn't invent any of this stuff. It's important to always remember that. But one of the things, and I think probably the most remarkable thing that the United States did, the most remarkable thing, I personally think, and I've studied all American history, I've taught classes from Jamestown to yesterday, But if I look, and world history, obviously, but if I look upon the most remarkable thing I think the United States did in terms of world history was that it established a precedent for creating a durable peace between neighbors. The idea that neighboring states could not go to war with each other, could take down the barriers between them, could even have a common citizenship, and lo and behold, a common currency, and that they could do all of those things. So um, what I'd like to talk about today, and the, really the focus of this whole talk, I know you're wondering what is the focus, is on the Constitution, the story of the American Constitution, how it created this precedent of sovereign states getting together, not going to war, cooperating, and building immense prosperity as a result, and how that's the story of the American Constitution and it's also the story of how it took the life of its staunchest defender Alexander Hamilton so to start with this whole question about the United States we always say the United States but actually that's a very modern thing in the 18th and 19th century if you're going to talk about the US you would say these United States these United States that sounds so weird to our ears doesn't it you know? so when did these United States, which was used well into the late 19th century. When did that become the United States? How did you get one country out of these various countries that were, you know, various states? Now it's important to remember, apropos of this, that, um, and as we talk about the US Constitution, that when the, that the United States has had two lives. I realize it's very easy to forget about the first life because it was pretty short. Uh, the first life of the United States was from roughly 1776 to roughly 1788-89, a period of a decade and more. That's when we were a confederation. Then the United States changed its government had a second life, and it became a federation, a federal republic. And that's a really key distinction. Because when the country first started, the, we, we say the country, but actually the states all felt very different from one another. Yes, they spoke the same language, sorta, kinda, depending whether you're a Vermonter or someone from the deep south, but they felt very different and they were very different. And I have to say something about words here now, because we use words now in ways that people didn't use them before. Uh, For example, the idea of a country, what you would, when you talked about your country, you were talking about your state. If you were talking about the larger, Uh, apparatus of the United States, you might use a very different word. In fact, sometimes they would use the word empire. I'll explain why they use that word, partly because they didn't have any other word for it. They couldn't figure out a way to describe a coalition of countries. And in fact, one one word that they sometimes used when they would say, well, let's all get together and have a conversation, they would use a word. They would use the word Congress. Now, we think of Congress, right, as like, you know, these people from one country, they get together and they have kind of like a parliament. No, 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 no. That wasn't the original meaning of Congress. So Congress was a meeting of separate states, separate nations, separate countries. So like the Congress of Westphalia, which ended the wars of the Reformation, was a Congress of independent nation states. So that, for example, um, when George Washington, great hero of the American Revolution, when he retired... Well, retired the first time. This guy retired a lot of times. They kept pulling him back. Poor fellow. When he retired the first time, he went to... uh, It was Richmond, Virginia, and they gave him a big banquet, and they said, we want to thank you for your great sacrifices and heroism on behalf of your country, meaning Virginia, and on behalf of the empire, meaning this United States thing, conglomeration thing. And even Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote about Virginia, he always said my country was Virginia. So the US and the, and the 13 states were, initially they were part of a big British empire. In fact, only half of the British colonies got together and went into revolution. There were, there were a bunch of others. You, and you think, well, why didn't Canada or Quebec or Newfoundland or, or the West Indies, why didn't they join? Well, they, it's a big story, but they didn't join. So what happened is when these countries, states got together, and there were 13 of them. Actually, there were 14 because Vermont broke off from New York. Nobody acknowledged it when that happened. Poor Vermont. But what happened is that they, were, they felt very different from each other. So, for example, I always like to point out Minnesota and Jamaica, both British colonies, not one nation under reggae that they they didn't feel like they were part of one country. There was no automatic one-countryness about these 13 colonies, now countries, any more than we today would say that Jamaica and Minnesotans are part of one natural country or that Californians and Canadians are part of one natural country. So what happened is essentially, after the uh, country was formed, they began to operate as different countries. I mean, I say the country, but really the states operated as separate entities. They had their own money. You see a, a, a dollar bill from Georgia up here. Uh, or maybe it's $4, sorry. Uh, it's a $4 bill from Georgia. Uh, they had their own militias. They had their own treasuries. They had their own tariffs. They had their own citizens. They were separate countries. But there was a problem with this. There was a loose confederation. It was this, but it was so loose, this Continental Congress, they could not get people to show up for the meetings. I tell you, this was worse than a section on Friday morning, really. I know some of you are in sections on Friday morning. You'll know what I'm talking about here. It's very hard, it was very hard to get people to even show up. In fact, when the British, we got the peace treaty from Great Britain, Congress could not get a quorum to approve it. They couldn't get a quorum. Why? because Congress meant nothing. It was a security guarantee during the revolution. And once its function was gone, there was no real reason to hold together as a country. But there were reasons, this Continental Congress, that it needed to have more power than it did. Because you see, the moment at which this empire broke apart into 13 states, this post-colonial moment, right? Now, that would have been perfectly fine, these little itty-bitty states getting along their own, if that had happened in, let's say, 1950, after the U.N. was formed. Because then these little itty-bitty states, no matter how rickety were they were, no matter whether they had a great army, it wouldn't matter there would be neighbors, there might be even the United States to pull out its army and navy and to defend their sovereignty. When Kuwait was invaded in 1990, the U.N. unanimously said, oh my gosh, we all have to rush to the defense of Kuwait because that was a moment that, that they, they could be protected. But that wasn't 1787. That wasn't 1776. And there were a lot of problems, most of them <laughs> having to do with the way the colonies treated each other. Now, we know that usually what happens in a kind of post-colonial moment, let's say there's a big empire, you know, the Earth shakes, it all falls apart into pieces, right? So the United States, in looking at this map here, we see you know, the 13 colonies that uh, we're looking at uh, this little space in here, Vermont and New York. It doesn't exist. It doesn't even have a name. Now, Vermonters know it has a name, but nobody else acknowledges it. And look what happens over here. This is all the land that the British gave the United States after the Revolution because they were big-hearted. They said, oh, okay, just take the whole kit and caboodle, the whole enchilada, it's yours. Well, what happens? Ooh, neighbors start to fight over it because that's what neighbors do. So I don't want to take too much time with this, but, you know, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, North Carolina, Georgia's into the boot, into the uh, uh, mix, Spain. Of course, there are foreigners, too, who might want your stuff. Now, by the way, Florida is Spanish. Well, it had been British, then it had been Spanish. It, it, it goes back and forth. This isn't one of the colonies that wanted to come with the United States in 1776. That's when it was still a British colony before it went back to Florida again. So that was a problem. And this had always been a problem, going back to the Greek city-states that, I'm hoping you remember World History 100 here, that the Greek city-states, whenever they had Persia ready to clobber them, well, they were able to get together and fight off the bad guys. But go away, Persia, and what happens? Ooh, your worst enemy are the Spartans or the Athenians. It's always your neighbor. So here the neighbors start to look askance at each other after the revolution. No wars yet, but there are trade wars. Actually, uh, New York, being kind of a big state, they clamped down on trade from Connecticut and New Jersey. And they put up tariffs. They're like, you know, if you want to sell us anything, you gotta, you know, you're, we're going to have to pay a tax because we don't want you to, we want our farmers to sell goods. We don't want your farmers to sell our people goods. They also had internal problems. This is a picture depicting um, Shays' Rebellion. And Shays' Rebellion was one of the most notable, there were others, uh, conflicts within the colonies themselves. Well, now now we're gonna call them states or countries, right? So you have to understand in this period of time, and it's really even still true today, that there are really only two real functions of government. And if your government doesn't do these two things, it has no right to exist, although today the UN might protect you. But especially in this period of time when there was nobody to protect you, the two basic functions of government are to keep internal control and to keep away predators. Internal control and keep out the bad guys. If you cannot do that, you will not exist. Period. You're, you will be over. And so Shea's Rebellion was a situation where this took place in Massachusetts. Massachusetts had no army or navy. They had a militia. They called out the militia. Nobody came. I, I can't remember the numbers. It's something like you know, 5,000 people are supposed to be in the militia and like, 22 showed up or something. It's, those aren't the exact numbers, but it was just glaring. Now, then you might say, well, what about that, like, you know, Continental Army? What about that U.S.? Oh, well, that doesn't really exist under the Confederation. In fact, what happened after Revolutionary War is that the Continental Congress disbanded the army. George Washington went home, of course. Um, they, uh, so the army went way down. They sold their last naval ship in 1784. 1784 to a private buyer. There was no Navy, there was no Coast Guard, there was no Army. Because all these states are supposed to defend themselves, but they couldn't. They were having trouble keeping internal order. Eventually, by the way, the Continental Congress in this situation kind of ponies up a little money and a few states kind of help out. But they're not able to do this function of government, which is to keep internal control. Nor, nor will they be able, in a real showdown, to defend themselves from the really big powers in the world, those countries that matter. I like this picture because what this picture shows is something that was pretty common. This is the story of Poland. Now, I know some of you have heard me talk a lot about Poland because Poland is just like an amazingly interesting country from a historical point of view. But what happened in the 1780s, 1790s is that Poland's neighbors, of course began slowly gobbling away at Poland. So here you see Catherine the Great, seated of Russia. She's a beautiful woman. Uh, You have uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia. You have Russian advisors. And what are they doing? They're looking at the map and they're saying, you know, I like that part. I have my pen here and I'm going to start, we're going to start gobbling it up. And why? Because Poland could not keep internal control. Internal order and Poland could not defend itself from outside predators. They actually had a, a sort of democracy at the time. Uh, another long story. But what happened in this uh, in this particular graph? What you're seeing in different shades of blue is the gradual elimination of Poland, which did not exist between uh, 1795 and 1919. Why? Because it couldn't guarantee its own sovereignty, and nobody owes a country a living. You have to get it for yourself in this period of time. Very different today. So what happened is that Poland gradually uh, disappeared. And the problem for the United States was that even their independence, you might say, well, wait a minute, you know, we'd fought a revolution. We, like, defeated, you know, the British Empire. Well, we could do that again if we had to. But in fact, the United States won the revolution because of our wonderful allies to whom we should always be eternally grateful, that is the French. There were more Frenchmen at the last climatic battle of the American Revolution and French ships than there were American, okay. than there were colonial. So the United States had to rely on a foreign power, which, by the way, uh, then it went through a revolution and had a lot of problems. Oh, my gosh, you know, France fell apart for quite a long time there. So the United States was unable, having trouble anyway, struggling with trying to maintain internal control and outside defense. And so the problem was, you have this beautiful, potentially beautiful experiment, but it could fall apart. And what it would show if it fell apart was that power can 't be shared, the people can 't be trusted, and your neighbors will always steal your stuff, right so they wanted to they wanted to find a way to create something where you could create enough unity and enough power that the states could remain different from each other, they could remain sovereign, they could have control over their destinies, they could feel like Alabama and Alaska and Delaware and, you know, they could be themselves and have self, know they could have autonomy, but at the same time, they would have something over them that could protect them and that, when necessary, could make the bad guy, make them behave, right, whether that's internally or externally. And so that brings us to the man of the hour, <laughs> or at least this hour, uh, which is to say Alexander Hamilton. I know, you're like, how, does, how, do, how are we going to get to this guy in the $10 bill? Well, Hamilton is, is so interesting for lots of reasons. He uh, was very different from many of the other great uh, founders of the American Republic, and, and there are many. I mean, this is not, not somebody who obviously does this alone at all. Um, but he's one of the most important, and some historians have actually argued, perhaps the key figure in helping us realize the need for a central government and actually executing it, making it happen that he was one of the key leaders and probably the first. So let me tell you a little bit about Hamilton. Hamilton was from this place. He, was, he grew up on St. Croix, which is an island in the West Indies. He was actually born in Nevis, which is an even tinier island that's a part of the British Empire. So he was a British citizen, as were the members of the 13 colonies. But he wasn't a local boy. He was a fern, or he was an outsider. And this was something that always affected him. People during the revolution, after the revolution, when he was in government, would like, yeah, you know, but he's not one of us, really. He's an immigrant. Perhaps one of the first real immigrants in power in American politics. But there was another thing about Alexander Hamilton that made him slightly different, because not only was he kind of an outsider that way, but in a way he was sort of socially an outsider. Uh, it's, it's a tragic story. Um, his parents weren't married. They weren't married not because they didn't love each other. They would have wanted to be married. But as it turned out, his mother had been previously married. And in those days, if you were previously married and they didn't like why you got divorced or whatever, you could, were forbidden ever to marry again. By the way, the guy could marry again, but the woman couldn't. I know. Things have changed. So what happened is that Alexander's parents met. They fell in love. They lived together. They had children. And all of their children were illegitimate from a legal point of view. They were, as we would say in the the parlance of the time, they were bastards. And that was a great deep social stain at that time. It was a very deep social stain. So this was something, when you say he left the West Indies, there kind of was a reason he got out of town. The other thing is that, as it went on in his life, his father abandoned this family, two illegitimate sons, and then his mother died. And Alexander and his mother caught the same West Indian crazy flu And they had one bed, and they were in bed, sleeping next to each other, this boy and his mom, and she died next to him. And this is the man who's on the $10 bill. And the other thing about Hamilton, so he comes, he gets out of town, he comes to Columbia College. This, by the way, is the earliest representation we have Hamilton as a boy. His father was Scottish, by the way. His mother was French, of French derivation, French Huguenot, which means Protestant. And... uh, Like I'm sure some of the students here in the classroom today, he was on scholarship because he had no money, which meant he had to be a very good student. I hope you're all minding your grades very carefully if you are scholarship students, right? Anyway, so uh, as he wrote at 17, when he came to the United States, and wow, there was this revolution going on. He, He gravitated. He understood perhaps instinctively this idea that laws are sometimes wrong. You know, why should he be legitimate? Why he should... By the way, he got none of his mother's property either because she did have one legitimate son and that son got everything. So he understood that laws are sometimes wrong. And as he wrote when he was 17 years old, this becomes one of the big pamphlets of the American Revolution, he wrote that the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature and can never be erased. Now, I know there are probably no 17-year-olds in this audience, so I want you to get up tomorrow and get working earlier and harder (laughs) so that you can uh, be one of these people who has such a profound effect uh, very early on. Now, he also joined the Revolution, and he became initially an artillery officer in the Revolution. Um, uh, Very, you know, he he worked his way from the ground up, so, you know, he didn't come in as, you know, from the top levels. Other people who were really kind of aristocrats were given officerships automatically. So he works his way up, and he not only works his way up, he's so smart, he's so interesting, he's so alive, that at the age of 22, George Washington sees what he's doing in the way of his work in the artillery. He's like, wow, this guy is something else. And he plucks Hamilton out of this army and says, I would like you to be my principal aide. And Adams becomes... Me. I said Adams, I'm sorry. Hamilton becomes the principal aide to George Washington. Now, as a result of this, the other thing that's interesting about Hamilton is that, therefore, he's in a position to know how really wrong things can go if you don't have a central authority. Um, as the uh, situation normal, as a military uh, term, situation normal, all messed up, snafu. This is television, I won't say what the F stands for, but in any case, that's a military notion that things go wrong so fast. And the problem is, and this is a picture of Valley Forge, by the way, this is Lafayette with Washington, Hamilton's not in this picture. But it wasn't the British Army that starved American troops at Valley Forge. It was the Continental Congress that starved British tro- American troops at Valley Forge, because the states were so jealous of each other, they're kinda of like little separate countries, that they hogged their militias and they hogged their money and they hogged their supplies for themselves. And so when the war was over, um, Hamilton realized, and because he, he had been this aide, so think of this, you're this person, your job is, uh, if you're an aide, that means you kinda of push papers around, you write letters, you go on campaigns, but you really see the whole thing and you realize there needs to be some coordination here. So when the war was over, there were a number of people, but Hamilton was the first who began writing about the idea that we needed to do something more. And he actually was, went to a convention that was held in, I think it was Annapolis, Maryland. And it was supposed to be, again, a gathering of all the states. Five out of 13 show up. Hello. Five out of 13 show up. Because they were supposed to work out um, navigation rights on the Potomac. So of all the things they could fight over, <clears throat> even such things as, like, whose right, who who's right is it to navigate the Potomac, Maryland or Virginia? And at that gathering, he got reacquainted with this man, James Madison. And Madison and, and Hamilton really hit it off. Uh, they found that they really thought alike about these problems. Now, if you remember American history, you, you go, okay, L.C. Hamilton, I mean, J- James Madison, I know, father of the Constitution. And he was that. But it was actually Hamilton who wrote the letter, because at that meeting they said, okay, listen, these Articles of Confederation are just like, you know, not working. So let's have a meeting. Let's call all the states. Let's hope some of them show up, or more of them show up this time, to revise the Articles of Confederation, get something better, so that we don't get invaded by France or Britain again or Spain or whoever. We don't start fighting with each other. And so it was Hamilton who wrote that letter. Madison was one of the chief organizers. However, it was Madison who went to George Washington and said, Buddy, you need to be there. (laughs) Out of retirement with you yet again. And so they met at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 to figure out, is there some way that neighboring states cannot fight with each other? And what they were trying to reconcile here was a a really fundamental conundrum of human government, which is, how can you reconcile the idea that all states, all countries... Can, can do whatever they want, they're perfectly sovereign, with the idea that you need somebody to tell them what to do. Right? How can you be master of your own def- destiny and have somebody else tell you what to do? But that's kind of what they needed. Now, there was no model for government for this, by the way. Um, the kind of model, the oldest model, was that of papal authority, the pope. Right? I, I know you remember that at one point the pope said, ah, oh, let's see, Columbus discovered the new world. I know, let's give half to Spain and half to Portugal. And like it sticks. Everybody goes, oh, okay, he said so. So that was the old mo- mode of authority. Nobody wanted that anymore. That had been done away with in 1648 by the Peace of Westphalia. That was gone. So what was the other model? Well, the other model, well, was kind of like the British model, British Empire. Now, in this case, meaning, uh, you know, the king's authority uh, over like Scotland and Wales and Ireland, etc. Now, the pro- two problems with that. First of all, nobody liked George III after the revolution, like, you know, tui, 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 right? <laughs> nobody is interested in George III or what, he, what their experience might teach us. Um, so that was a big part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that, in this case, when you have an authority, that authority tends to uh, actually be from one of the countries that's in coalition together. He's English. And so, you know, ask the Irish and the Welsh how they felt about this, empire they felt that they were less than and americans didn't want that they wanted new hampshire and virginia and new york and massachusetts and connecticut and pennsylvania and virginia to all have the same rights so they wanted an authority over them but they couldn't figure out what it'd be so they came up with a model that's a model that persists to today and i'm going to take a little um license here and show you a, tra- a graphic that uh, a friend helped me come up with They needed an umpire. They needed something that wasn't an empire. They needed something that would coordinate between the states, call people out when they were wrong, but then get out of the way and let the game resume, let everybody be equal within this game. And so essentially what happened is that they revised the Constitution, they rewrote the whole thing. Uh, By the way, were people happy about that? No. Anybody who didn't attend the meeting was like, you know, that's not what you were supposed to be doing at that meeting. And also, by the way, they did it behind closed doors. And um, this was also a big no-no. They're like, well, like, what are you guys cooking up in there? So there was a big protest. There was a lot of controversy when it came out. And this is the beginning of partisanship, real deep partisanship in American government. Now, the key, the key votes in all this... Were the biggest states. Now, you say, well, why some of the biggest states? Well, because they had the most money and wealth and power. What do they need these little shrimps for? What do they need Delaware for? They don't need them, right? So the big states, New York, Virginia, the wealthiest of them all because of slavery, because of plantation uh, tobacco primarily and later cotton. Uh, Massachusetts, a big state that had great ships. They don't need this thing. And so what happens is the big swing states, you know, are, the ones, are these ones. Well, now, in Virginia, by the way, okay, they got George Washington. All right, if George Washington says it's good, like, we're, we all agree it's good. So, but there were people who passionately opposed it. James Monroe was an, uh, an opponent. Patrick Henry, give me liberty, give me death. That man opposed the Constitution and was bitter about its passage. Um, Massachusetts was a squeaker. They got it through. But the other really big state was New York. New York is huge, as we still know today. New York, the most important states of all. So it was Alexander Hamilton, who wasn't from any state, who realized that people better stop stop being provincial and better get it together and understand that we all need each other. But he, he lived in New York, and he very much identified with New York, and he married a New Yorker. And he became the principal organizer of this publication called the Federalist Papers. And in the Federalist Papers, what they did is they spelled out all the reasons why New Yorkers should vote for this thing and make it true that there would be a the United States, not simply a these United States. And the word they used, I found this very interesting. Actually, this is based on my own research, um, but it's there for anybody to see. So, you know, I didn't invent this at all. Hamilton says, you know, between conflicts, we need an umpire. Uh, John Jay, who's one of the other authors, says an umpire would decide between the states to compel acquiescence if they get into trouble. Madison said about the U.S. Congress, what better umpires could be desired than these representatives in Congress? Now, by the way, all three guys are up there. Hamilton's on the far right, so you think, oh, maybe he's like the big organizer. He wrote twice as many of these essays as anybody else. He wrote something like 50. Madison wrote 25. John Jay, well, he wrote like four, so but you know, they're all up there. Um, so, Matt Hamilton is the primary organizer of this, and the idea is that what would happen is that an umpire would coordinate the states, but no state could rob another, fight with another, oppress another, because there would be something, there would be a body above them that wouldn't rob them of their identity but would make them work together. And, uh, and then what happens next, and this brings us back to Hamilton's own story, because Hamilton, as it turns out, George Washington really likes Hamilton. They have worked together all the way through the revolution. He really trusts Hamilton. So when it comes time to actually go, okay, all right, we got the document, hmm, <laughs> sort, of like, sort of like getting a new piece of technology. Have you ever taken out the, uh, the instruction manual? You're like, I do not know how to put this IKEA desk together. I just do not. Anyway, so there's this manual that's the U.S. Constitution. Hamilton, who's a very good organizer, in many ways he's empowered by by Washington, who makes him Secretary of the Treasury. In other words, puts him in charge of the budget, puts him in charge of creating the mechanisms of government. And this is when Hamilton becomes personally very, very controversial. Because he says, okay, we're going to do it. Um, We are going to create a central government One of the things he does is he creates, he pushes through Congress what's called the Bank of the United States. He says, you know, a government needs a bank. We need money. We need to get taxes, which, by the way, nobody likes to pay, so that makes you pretty unpopular. Uh, That's what Shays' Rebellion was about, by the way. Nobody wanted to pay taxes. So now Hamilton has to be the big bad guy. Uh, His is the biggest uh, agency in the federal government. He has something like 450 employees because you have to have a lot of tax collectors and accountants, et cetera. Uh, Thomas Jefferson has three. He's secretary of the of foreign relations, basically, uh, Secretary of State, so he doesn't have that much to do. Madison be, um, pardon me, Hamilton becomes the lightning rod for all of those people who said, I told you so, this isn't going to work, and I don't like it. So he becomes very, very controversial, but he pushes, he perseveres, he gets things through the Congress. This, by the way, is a representation of Independence Hall, which if you go to Philadelphia, and I, I passionately hope you, you, you will... Uh, Independence Hall is on the left, and on the right is the place that a lot of times people don't go. They're like, oh, I just want to see that place where, like, the Declaration of Independence was signed and and the Constitution. But on the right is the Congress, and that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Uh, And it was here that Hamilton, who was a member of the executive branch under the president, he had to push through these various measures. This, by the way, is the first U.S. Congress. It looks kind of like a high school classroom, doesn't it? It's smaller than our classroom. And that's where the representatives of the states met. Uh, Upstairs from there uh, was the Senate chamber. You can go there today. By the way, I was so charmed. I, I went there for the first time, saw this hall for the first time just maybe two years ago. And in the stairwell, there's a portrait of, get this, beautiful, huge portrait of Louis XVI of France and of Marie Antoinette, his wife both of whom, of course, lost their heads in the French Revolution. I thought how poignant it was that America, which prides itself on being a democracy and, and all of that, that I thought it was very honorable that they, that they you know, acknowledged the, the gift of France. However, this wasn't always a happy place. <laughs> I made it sound like, oh, and then they worked together. Actually, they did not. And in fact, as the, as the second or third election approach of the United States government, this is what happened in the U.S. Congress. These are two guys who just started wailing on each other. They were from different political parties because what happened, again, is that political parties began to emerge. And this, you think the U.S. Congress looks bad now? I'm a telling you. They they look like, you know, it's like Sunday school or something compared to the way the U.S. Congress at times operated. Now, it wasn't always a free for all, but the point is that potential for violent conflict between neighbors still lurked there under the surface. And so what happened is that, uh, that this need for an, an umpire, this need, they, they, they created it, but could they actually get it to work? And the real test was the election of 1800, in which two former friends, I mean, Jefferson and Adams were such good buddies, they shared a house. They lived together. It was like a big pajama party. Uh, They were both in Paris at a certain time at the same time. And they they were really great friends. But they became such enemies in this uh, election because they were different parties. Nobody thought parties would actually arise. They thought, oh, you know, that can't happen to us. Like, you know, we all agree with each other. We're all friends and neighbors. Friends and neighbors. So what happened is that uh, actually it did work. Um, This was the first peaceful transfer of power in all world history from one group in control of the executive branch of government to another. There had been other political parties, but this idea that you would give to the people you absolutely hated the power to run the government, the executive power, this was really, truly unprecedented, and it was because of the role that this Congress, this umpire was playing. And that was a precedent that endured for generations. Didn't always work. I know you're thinking, wait, what about that Civil War? Okay, it didn't always work. But after the Civil War, people came back and they worked together again. It's worked up to the very present. I always, this is one of my favorite examples of the umpire working at home, which was in 1957 in in, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, when nine students younger than yourselves were denied admission to the local high school because they were African American. Well, if the states were fully sovereign, That's the end of the conversation. But there was an umpire, and President uh, Dwight Eisenhower sent down the 101st Airborne to walk each of these students to school every day for a year. And this shows the students initially going in. And these are the guys with their rifles. This is the federal umpire at work that works up, in fact, to the present. But let's get back to our man of the hour, because I know you're thinking, but how does he end up dead? And of course, by the way, who's he killed? Who kills him? the sitting vice president of the United States, the sitting vice president of the United States, who's then indicted for murder in two states, in New Jersey and New York. Aaron Burr is indicted for the murder of the former Secretary of Treasury. Alexander Hamilton, by this time, had stepped down, was now in private life. And it was Aaron Burr who killed him. Now, why does Aaron Burr kill him? Well, because of... They, Burr grew to hate Hamilton for a variety of reasons, but probably the most important one for our purposes is what happened in that election of 1800. Because the US Constitution was still like kind of funky, like they they hadn't figured out all the tricks of this operating manual. And one of the problems with the operating manual is that if people on a ticket, let's say, you know, Barack Obama and Joseph Biden, they run together on one ticket, right? And then you have a Republican ticket. At this time, if you ran together then you, you both actually could potentially get the same number of electoral votes. And if you got the same number of electoral votes, then, like, who's president and who's vice president? It's, like, weird. The tickets didn't operate like they operate today. Hamilton knew this, but there are others who, who didn't. In fact, Aaron Burr was one of those people who said, oh, don't worry about it. Go ahead and elect me with Thomas Jefferson. I know he's meant to be president. Well, it was a different matter when this got thrown into the House of Representatives. Now, who dominates the House of Representatives? the opposition party, because they're the ones who just got kicked out of office, and they're not too happy about this. So their party, the Federalists, John Adams, etc., they had to decide between, ooh, their favorite person to hate, Thomas Jefferson, and their second favorite person to hate, Aaron Burr. Well, the chances were very good that they would have selected um, uh, Thomas Jefferson. And the person who came to the aid of Aaron Burr, among many, but the, probably the most important person was Alexander Hamilton, who wrote letter after letter after letter saying, you have to elect Jefferson, because he's a man of honor. You know, I can't stand the, this fellow, but he's a man of honor. He has principles. I don't agree with him on 200, 100 different things, but he's a man of honor. He loves his country. And Aaron Burr is an absolute opportunist. So what happened is that the U.S. Congress, these federalists, deciding about the fate of Thomas Jefferson, voted 34 times. And Aaron Burr sat on his hands the whole time. He never said, oh, I do understand that Jefferson was the guy you wanted. No. Nope. Finally, in you know, the 35th vote or so, that Congress decided by one vote to elect Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. When they did that, they showed the power, the purpose, the promise. Of a federal umpire. What better representatives, what better umpires could be desired than people in Congress to decide the fate of the country? In making this decision, they probably preserved the Union. By the way, John Adams at this time thought that there would be a Civil War. In fact, many people, I'm sorry, I have to back up here slightly. This was after, by the way, the Federals had totally tortured Alexander Hamilton for like a decade. Uh, he was, I'm sorry to say, unfaithful to his wife. They leaked the news to the press. This was his wife, a beautiful, wonderful woman, Eliza Hamilton. Uh, The man who probably did that dirty deed was James Monroe, a later president of the United States. The situation partisanship was so bad that the eldest son of Alexander Hamilton was killed three years before his father in a partisan duel. But in any case, Alexander Hamilton was so afraid, as was Adams, and Adams wrote that a civil war was expected. And what they thought might happen in 1800 was what had happened in France, which was everyone's heads were coming off and the Jacobin outrage happened. So instead, what happened is that this umpire made this decision. Alexander Hamilton was challenged to a duel by Aaron Burr. Subsequently, he goes to the duel. He does not fire his gun at Aaron Burr. He does not want to take Aaron Burr's life but Aaron Burr wants his. And so uh, essentially what Alexander Hamilton does is he helps to preserve the spirit of democracy. He helps to establish the United States. He helps to prove why an umpire is important. And all of that is no small accomplishment for the orphaned, penniless, bastard brat of a Scotch peddler, which was how John Adams had described him. So as I said, this really establishes a pattern in world history, a pattern from which we all benefit today. I leave with you with my traditional parting shot, which is how could a father with seven young children not defend his life in a duel? For that, you will have to read my next book. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Interested in more history? Check out the second season of C-SPAN's Presidential Recordings podcast. Go behind the scenes with privately recorded phone calls between President Richard Nixon and members of Congress, members of his administration, and even members of his own family. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.